welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer as always. And yeah, uh, sorry, we've kind of been a little bit busy with life things lately. Sam is finishing his dissertation and PhD. Congrats, Sam. I am moving halfway across the world. No joke. And so, yeah, we've been trying to get together, trying to record a podcast, but we're going to be real with you here. It's been like a very, very busy summer. And just a heads up, after this episode, we're probably not going to drop another episode for about three weeks. It definitely won't be later than three weeks. But yeah, we need to just tidy up some things in our personal lives. And uh, then we'll be back on a more slightly regular schedule. But the exciting thing about this episode is that Sam and I are staring at each other across the table. Deeply into each other's <laughs> eyes. <laughs> so, on t- so in today's episode, we're going to do a tight one. And we're going to be touching back on some topics that we've covered in the past. Checking in on some recent headlines that we felt was worthy of discussing. Uh, the first one is we're going to be covering some moves that Mark Zuckerberg's meta has been making in the music industry. And then we're going to be talking about fairness, the fairness of ticket prices and whether or not you can make a fair moral ticket price. And is that a thing? I don't know. We'll discuss it. But okay, let's first let's dive in on what Meta's been doing. I still can't believe they chose that name. It's the worst name. I just like Facebook's actually like a disappointingly a pretty good name. Like it's vivid it helped define i feel like a whole aesthetic of web names but meta is meta is a terrible name i burst out when i first read that news when it came across my iphone screen just hysterically laughing i mean i don't know it kind of makes sense to me i mean these people seem like really fucking out of touch with like things like branding and like what's cool and hip i guess or like what would like track they're like like they're at a point now where they're like they're beyond the branding they're just trying to like control the world (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's still like a George Costanza ass name. <laughs> it's like, we're going to call it meta. It's going to be, we're the everything company. <laughs> we're the about things company. <laughs> I know. It's like, sometimes like lately, I feel like I'm living in like a parody of like, uh, of, of like, I don't know, like an Adam McKay, like, like movie or, or something like, is this really happening? Or is this like completely, I mean, anyways, I don't want to go know, It's down like what Mark said, right? First is tragedy. Then as farce. Third as Will Ferrell level farce. Yeah, Will Ferrell level farce for sure. God, it's 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 yeah, it's a lot. But uh, either way, they're a massively powerful fucking company, and there's a lot of video content, and people want to put music with that video content, and so they've been at the table with the big, the big imprints. Yeah. So basically, the news came out, I guess, last week that. Meta had signed a, a new set of agreements with the major labels, um, I guess, uh, kind of offering this deal, I, I, I'd assume. I, I don't know the actual details about the kind of the what, what's going on with like Merlin, which again is the big, uh, quote unquote, independent label kind of trade group or some of the smaller indies. But Meta basically offered a deal where content creators are able to use licensed music without it being taken down in exchange for a split where the creator gets 20% of whatever ad revenues they make off that that content um and then face facebook meta and uh the rights holders get the remaining 80%. Dear listener, you will not be surprised to know that the details of that split um between meta and the rights holders between well well between the 80% and how it gets split between meta and the rights holders. And by the rights holders, we mean the major labels for the most part, the publishers, which are often owned by the major labels, um, and then the artists at some point in that chain. And like, also it doesn't, you know, uh, uh, are thinking about copyright, right? With Where there's, uh, as we've discussed in kind of the consent decree uh, episode now, like a year, year and a half go back. Um, if you want to go back and check that out, like, the, the copyright laws, um, as a result of the very specific uh, social and economic dynamics that structured their implementation, have kind of like splits that are kind of out in the open and that people consider quote unquote fair, but like, cause mostly because we've all gotten used to them. But this is like all how that box is sliced is pretty much 
entirely opaque to uh, us here at Money for Nothing, but also like probably pretty opaque no matter what. And like not determined by copyright or a legal set of legal standards, but much more likely to be determined by the kind of lawyer-based negotiation. Yeah, by the suits, right? By the, the negotiations between the majors and the the major social media. Maybe, it might be interesting to explain like why this can be just like a decision made in a boardroom and be opaque and not by any kind of like copyright laws. Oh, because it's sync, right. I think, right? Yeah. Because it's not... When you put video content and music content together to create a new art form, that is considered to be sync. And unlike uh, performance royalties um, or mechanical reproduction royalties, mechanicals, sync is kind of a, a free-for-all, which in certain circumstances is really advantageous to artists, right? Like the famous... Uh, of Montreal doing an Outback Steakhouse commercial, which then they used it on to, per, to, to, to to purchase enormous amounts of shaving cream for their live show type like glory days situations on one side. And then like the other side, which I think is, is, is given the kind of uh, the plethora of music currently available on these websites is the kind of, well, if you want to get synced, you get, nothing or you get a certain payout that's determined by the platforms and yeah you could probably pull it down off the platform but like if you want to be in the platform you have to play by the platform's rules which is kind of what exists in places like youtube for example right like youtube isn't like paying out the nose for sync in in these circumstances and is that just because like 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 sync laws were like because sync laws were created like a long time before this kind of technology really kind of yeah, a long time so before prevalent. this technology and a, and a long time after the major legislation that set up the copyright structure, right? Right, like, and we've talked about this before, that it's like it, it's like these kind of legislations tend to happen <laughs> like long after they needed to. And now like there's def- we're definitely in need of more legislation, probably, you know, but it's probably not going to happen because it's so complex and so detailed. Beyond like what we were talking about, you know, I guess like probably like two years ago now, which was the Music Modernization Act. Right. Yeah. And and some really cool calls um, that we're hoping to do an episode on um, coming up about like people like Representative Jayapal um, pushing for uh, a new like streaming royalty as like a, a new kind of royalty to change these laws. And like that's a really exciting campaign again that we're hoping to do an episode about in, in the future. But yeah, so like. My sense is that the, the the reason this is the Wild West is because it's sync. And, and because it's the Wild West, I mean, uh, it's actually like, it's not really Wild West. It's like law of the jungle, right? And like the yeah. big animals get to set the rules. Sure. And the big animals are the handful of major social networks and the major labels that control a disproportionate, as we've talked about, like forever a disproportionate amount of the major artists that are going to soundtrack so if you want to do um like a dance to like lizzo's about that time um you need to have like the warner okay so some of this stuff has has been worked out in in specifically in video streaming content land right like youtube has had certain kinds like content id laws and payout laws for a while and I think what's interesting about this is that this is it moving into social media in a new way, right? This is about like Instagram reels. <laughs> this is about Instagram live. This is about these dominant social media platforms and trying to find ways, I think from, from a music business perspective, trying to find ways to have those become touch points for value right. creation. Yeah, I was just about to say that. Yeah, touch points for value cre- for for content creation but also for like earning revenue. Yeah, and and with the idea that as, you know, to kind of taking meta at its name, like as <laughs> these structures get built out into an immersive world that the way that the music industry is uh, as far as we could tell, like thinking about its future is rather than selling records or rather than just relying on a company like Spotify, which I mean is still surviving, still thriving in certain ways, but like the amount of profit it's generating is just never going to be that much. 
but trying to kind of reduce friction in all of these environments, right? So instead of maybe getting sued if, you know, like it being a weird litigious gray area, just saying like, okay, it's all allowed, go do what you want, but we're going to get this major cut. I mean, I guess opens up possibilities for content creators. I don't really, I'm not going to sit here and pretend I understand like how to approach being a content creator, but, um, but it's like, it's happening, you know I mean? Obviously it's, it's almost like, it's, it's almost like silly to say like, but obviously like streams and TikTok and like all this stuff, like Instagram live and Instagram stories and Instagram reels and whatever the hell, I mean, it's all happening. It's all there. It's like become like a ubiquitous part of our, of our culture. And so it's like, obviously, like, how do we monetize this? And also, though, how do we make it legal? Yeah. How do we please the beast of the forest? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. How do we? And and thinking about, like, I mean, on, on one hand, it's interesting to think about the ways, again, that, like, these backroom deals structure this kind of stuff. Because, yeah. you know, as, we, as we've talked about a lot of times, right, like, the critical touch point, um, or sorry, the critical leverage, rather, uh, is the fact that because it's sync to get on these platforms, you need to sign a deal with the majors and they can extract maybe not whatever terms they want because the majors at this point probably like need meta need certainly need TikTok. Um, but the flip side is also true, right? Like they really do have leverage um, and, and can extract some pretty big deals that again, like, is value creation and that results in money that goes to the corporate coffers but isn't exactly being earned by any specific you know (laughs) artists it's just the um you know the the kind of like the meta valuation (laughs) right of like the fact that you have all these artists and that you need to have access to them. And they're able to kind of generate, the majors are able to generate real revenue off of that. Yeah, it'd be super fascinating to see like how this is built into like contracts, like, you know, like, and and what the percentage is that the artists are actually like earning on this. And I mean, like, you know, it'd be interesting to see like what the fuck like Drake's earning on this. And then like even like a mid-level, like, I don't know, what was that rock band you mentioned to me <laughs> recently? <laughs> shine down like <laughs> and you're like do you know they're a huge brand <laughs> shine down uh has just tied the foo fighters for the most modern alternative number one rockets in the radio saxon <laughs> so- dear listener have you heard of this band <laughs> anyways uh but yeah no it would be interesting to see like how that's even like playing out and for i mean and i feel like will there ever be leverage with the artist to like really negotiate that percentage because i also because i feel like it's i mean yeah if you got like a lot of if you have like a lot of leverage if you're like if you are like a drake or if you are a drake or whoever like obviously you do have some more leverage with that but it does seem like i mean and we don't know the percentages but i mean judging from the last hundred years of the music industry we're gonna guess it's probably pretty small (laughs) like this is actually the funny thing is is that when you explain all this it really is just a kind of a repeat of like kind of how these music how these like big labels have been operating like their entire existence yeah and and the sense of it's like different technology and th- but nothing changes <laughs> yeah and and i think also different technology and nothing changes at like a at, a at a high level but also like different technologies and the complexities of those technologies enable like the chicanery to like sneak on back in yeah right yeah. like the level of opacity like the the level of opacity is an advantage to whoever has the most lawyers Right, yeah, and that's what I was kind of trying to say earlier too. Is that like, the level of that opacity is also why, like, it. I mean, it's so difficult to even kind of create any kind of like legislation or like laws around this. And it can be complicated too because it's also about you know, creative reading of contracts that can exist for a really long time. Right. Yeah. If you're Lizzo again, let's use the example, and you've, I mean, I don't know what her contract was when she was first blowing up because she didn't blow up like off a hit, but like. Lizzo's got good lawyers and I assume that Lizzo's contract is pretty good. And let's say Lizzo re-signs her contract, right? I am sure that Lizzo's like good ass lawyers are going to make sure that the percentages on like meta splits are pretty good or as good as they can get, right? That's going to be, right. but right. if you're a, a baby artist, if you're someone without 
a team of good lawyers behind you negotiating that on page 15 out of 50 of your contract or so like as we saw with like even like fairly major artists for instance like uh fortet um who's not like a best-selling artist but is like a fairly major long established name like yeah making a living yeah one would sure, assume, yeah right uh recently had a lawsuit with his label domino uh, i think with the label that released his first couple records basically um that he, he he won actually but basically because they didn't have streaming specified in the contract because the contract was written and signed before streaming and so one is and so the label was just like <laughs> like not paying him or or certainly not paying him as much as he thought he deserved and i could see a similar thing happening to like a lot of artists yeah i mean who, that's, that's exactly what i was gonna say as well yeah it's like the technology is developing so fast that yeah, you can make a contract, you know, like Lizzo can resign a contract, but like what, what is in that contract or what's in Fortet's contract in like two, three, four years won't be necessarily applicable, but like whatever new Web3 metaverse, like fucking shit that, that Mark Zuckerberg and his team of robots are like coming up with. Um, but it But it also leads into that, another aspect of this in that they're shaping this space and in shaping the space, they're determining... Uh, the parameters of it and in a way could also shape the parameters in a way that they could always be a step ahead of the game so that it's profitable for them and i mean yeah. and it is interesting to like to see meta it is interesting to see like meta like get in bed with like these like major labels you know because essentially like they both have i mean i'm sure one of the first things they said when they sat down at the negotiating table is that they both have similar interests and that's like turning a profit in this like new space that's developing and like, how can music be a part of that? You know, and like, how can we like maximize that revenue? And in, in and in, you know, maybe I'm like getting a little like tin hat here, but like, of course they're gonna like negotiate something that keeps them ahead of the game in doing that, and, ma- and purposely making that shit opaque, and purposely staying ahead of like legislation or like even just like general outcry from artists. Absolutely, and and, and I also think even going more broadly, thinking about the way it shapes not just the industry, which is yeah, culture too, right? But culture more generally. And, and again, uh, thinking about like what you're saying before sex and about how this is in some ways a lot like, like how it's always been. It like reminds me of like the kind of like weird like uh, contracts that people were signing in like the 20s and the 30s. And, and thinking about though, like, you know, taking meta at its, like, word a little bit, or rather, at its name a little bit, and thinking about, like, social media and social media spheres as, like, not just a new form of public sphere, but an increasingly large percentage of our public lives, in which case, like, performance royalties, right? Performance royalties were created in partially because of result of copyright laws, but were created in the late teens by the, the modern system, by ASCAP, basically, because a lot of composers got together and were like, a lot of people, right, previously we circulated our music to try to sell, circulated our songs, got our songs played everywhere we possibly could um, in order to try to sell sheet music. But now there are all of these cafes in New York City that are making bank with our songs, orchestrations of our songs, that aren't paying us a dime. And if your entire business is based around our music, like pay us. And so then after that, in public life, in the kind of like going through the world, there was, it wasn't, and it couldn't always be collected, obviously, but there's like, was an assumption that there was monetizable streams, invisible monetizable streams connecting anytime you heard music out in the world to the songwriters, right? And it happened in the real world. And what's kind of like, what's kind of really interesting here is that in some ways that's happening again, but an entirely privatized version of that as like, Look, you go to some places, and I think I've said this before, like you go to some parts of New York City and you're like, oh, Instagram is 60% of this world, right? This 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 neighborhood with the cobblestones, right? This is 60% Instagram, 40% like IRL, just in terms of like how people are engaging with the things around them. Okay, yeah, yeah. Which means that like having that music <laughs> happen the way at some level 
Music has all literally always happened, right? Soundtracking important life events, soundtracking meaning in a different way, the way the music has existed since sound recording, right? The ability to drop sounds into spaces to help us define them against the changes of modernity in the 20th century also like is now happening again in these digital spaces that now there's new tech or not new technologies new uh negotiations coming online that allow everyone to put whatever songs they want to every single one of their instagram reels every single one of their digital memories but again that in a way that this previous set of negotiations was determined and look, it wasn't like a perfect system. We don't want to valorize that. It, like it never was better, but was at least like determined by an act of Congress decided by a whole bunch of different constituents. This is being decided by like the three major labels and meta in a Silicon Valley, like boardroom somewhere. And like maybe that, boardroom is online which means they don't have arms they don't have legs creepily or like maybe it's real life and they all do have legs just you talking about that makes me think about how it's so interesting because it's like preying on this like i don't know praying is the word but it's definitely like taking advantage of this like desire to express one's own individuality but like as filtered through these like privatized social media platforms which in a weird way they not that that hasn't always been a thing in culture for the last, like, let's say, like, whatever, 50, 50 years. You know, this and what I mean by that, like, a desire to, like, express one's, like, own individuality through, like, some sort of, like, creative means on a, on a mass scale, on a mass scale. But what's interesting is that, like, they kind of, like, created this culture to, like, do that by, like, op, like creating the platform. Well, I guess, like, they didn't, like, I guess they bought Instagram. But you get my point. Like, this sort of... I don't know what you want to call it. Like They're te- setting technical. the conditions in a yeah, way that's, yeah. that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, so, yeah, and it, it completely is remarkable in the sense that, like, you know, now this is, like, how we uh, express ourselves and define ourselves is, like, through these, like, I mean, whether it's, like, a dating app or whether or not it's, like, you know, Instagram or, like, TikTok, this is, like, a way in which we express our individuality or, like, want to shape how we express or showcase our supposed reality of our lives and, like, how our lives are. So these companies are basically like taking advantage of that, but they're the ones who also, or like this technology or this like sort of cultural shift in the last 20 years is like what's created the opportunity to then do that. If that makes sense. Like, Oh, like we're going to create this platform where you can go and express yourself. And now we're going to have videos in which you can add music. And now we're going to go ahead and make money off the fact that you want to add music to your like content creation. Yeah. It's just deeper down the rabbit hole. Right. And it, yeah, it's just like, you know, I, I guess it's like, now that I just, then I just said it out loud. It's just like, Oh yeah, like capitalism. It's like market begets market, right? Yeah, like but no, but what's also interesting too is that like I think that something I want to bring up and that we can go ahead and wrap up this topic that that there's like a in this deal with Meta, there's like a digital music library in which you can access as a content creator if you're like making these videos or reels or whatever the fuck they are, like on Meta. And that's another interesting thing, aspect of control, because essentially those major labels are controlling what the fuck is in that digital music library and what isn't. And I'm just, and from I, their I have supplies. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. What's that from their supplies? Sure. Yeah. From their supplies. Exactly. And I'm just kind of curious if like, well, I'm just kind of curious about whether or not you think that this is almost kind of a desire to rein in the sort of unpredictability of random ass like songs taking from like years ago or like from some indie band like becoming popular because like you know of like some like tiktok like trend or whatever i'm thinking like you know there was like that indie band from chicago beach bunny or whatever in the sense that like oh wait this is a way in which we can like only offer you like these artists in which we know like our major generators for like merchandise and other musical touch points as well you know that are outside of this realm and then actually like make more money like they know who their major sellers are outside of these musical touch points, whether it become a concert or whether it be like merchandise or what. And so it's like, in a weird way, this could be a way in which they control, like, like they just continue to push their major sellers. So they know that sell and have a little bit more control over that. And at least have like a little bit of a control. If not that, at least have a little bit more control over the unpredictability of it. I mean, I don't know. I mean, you could, if they wanted, <laughs> that's yeah, that's just a, like, you just leave it at that. that. Like, like a, a pretty good way to frame like the basic, basic, one of the basic models of the music industry, right, is that they want, and like the culture industries in general, they, they they want and thrive off of a mixture between control and unpredictability, right? True. Partially because if they keep pushing the same old thing, people do get tired of it and they are unable to like adequately or accurately like 
hundred percent of the time, like like minority report the entire American consumer population sure, and figure sure. out like actually actually what people are going to want in the future. So they they do want information. They're more effective if they get information back about what people want because people are always changing targets. So like they want some of that randomness clearly. Also, you could argue from like a labor perspective that you want a constant stream of new artists coming in because when a handful of artists are big sellers, they start doing things like renegotiating their contracts in a serious way. Now, the thing is, is that like all of that said, as I've said before with TikTok and like (laughs) this is not a claim, but this is a gut level hunch I would be surprised if having signed complicated deals between a handful of major labels and Facebook, similarly, a handful of major labels and TikTok to create, to license this music for these things, if the major label artists don't do okay in this digital anything goes realm, right? They still want randomness, but I just... It would seem to to kind of uh, it just seems unlikely to me that there aren't some like climactic benefits to the major labels from these kinds of deals undergirding this emergent like digital social realm. Yeah, sure, sure, and I I think that also like I still think my point stands though in the sense that you you can go ahead and create this like sort of like level of randomness, but like the randomness exists within this pool of like music and artists. Well, like the an old Arctic Monkeys track blows up. Right, like they're like fine with that, but like that you know something that's made like not um. I mean, we're not gonna get into this, but I also read around like the move to like FPR like user centric royalties that like if one of their major there's there's apparently like a, a suggestions that like if like some of the major artists on these labels are getting an adverse cut of of that if they the, the move to that then like there, there'd be like an exception where there'd be like a, a floor in which they have to earn which is fucking wild so like maybe they can do that with this situation as well but uh yeah it, it's a it's an interesting watch this space situation that to see like meta really kind of basically yeah get in bed with like these like major labels it's also we, pushing pushing against tiktok which is right replaced instagram as the most used app including including sam oh sam. yeah oh my god yeah. straight into the veins baby meta and mark zuckerberg which i i don't think mark zuckerberg listens to music do you think he listens to music he probably listens to like ambient music like like but like he doesn't choose i mean can you even yeah i'm thinking i'm thinking like no i don't think he listens to music mark zuckerberg only listens to insert blank yo mark zuckerberg only listens to cold wave Mark Zuckerberg only listens to Tupac. Mark Zuckerberg only listens to Tupac. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Yeah. Machiavelli. <laughs> but the question, do you think that... Uh, so I... Um, no, but actually, hold on really quickly. Yeah. We can figure this out. Mark Zuckerberg was kind of fratty bro trying to make an impression with girls at Harvard in 2003. So he definitely listened to the Black Eyed Peas. No question. Oh, yeah. For sure. Definitely listened to the Black sure. Eyed Peas. He's definitely invited Will I Am to a house party. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's invited Will I Am to a house party. He, like, he might like Kings of Leon, actually. Yeah. Or uh, what was that band out of, like, Vegas that had the, like, Mr. Brightside? Yeah, he's definitely a huge killer. He definitely has rocked out to kill. He knows yeah, yeah. he's rocked out to the killer. He's rocked sure. out at the front row of a killer's concert. No question. Yeah, definitely. Um... I mean, rocked out. Flow rider. Flow rider. Oh yeah, apple bottom jeans. Um. So I just go no. So it turns out, 
we got an answer for this. No shit, really? Yeah. From uh, a publication called The Hour. I don't know. Add Mark Zuckerberg's favorite songs to your playlist. Oh, it's exactly. I think that's what we're going to do. We're going to add all our favorite songs to his playlist. So, so let's go. We're going to add all our favorite songs to his playlist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we are. Here we go. Okay. Number one. Changes by Tupac. I fucking called it. No bro. fucking way, dude. <laughs> all right. The weekend, Green Day. Oh yeah, Green Day. Oh, Green Day. Yeah, wait, wait, yeah. hold on, hold on. The weekend, the really? Well, as the weekend, can't feel my face. Daft Punk, California Love by Tupac, Green Day, Basket Case, Nirvana, Jay Z, Daft Punk. Oh, Jay Z, obviously, yeah. because he's like he's a business. He's not a businessman. Called he's it a with Tupac. Man. You did call it with Tupac. See, 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 fans. It was, it was like, like it was literally three weeks worth of wait to just see me actually figure out who Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> listens to. Okay. Well, that with that being said, we can move on to our next topic, which is all about the boss. Yes, direct from New Jersey. Boss Bruce goes bust. Boss goes bust. Yeah, the boss is like trying to like he's make trying to harsh pay, the mellows. like a lot of money for tickets. Like, what's going on? No, not really. It's but- fucked up. It's like you'd think that a guy who does a podcast with his best friend Barack Obama wouldn't possibly try to demand thousands of dollars for seats yeah well who would have thought that you know this is like a working class guy right i mean he probably still lives in an apartment complex and like you know works a day job of course like right that's the boss right yeah 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 of course yeah yeah we see him working heavy construction like you know with his like lunch pail and everything that's still america right yeah uh no so what the actual story is is that yeah ticketmaster is doing this kind of new system um it's not for like every show but basically they've been kind of experimenting with it a little bit and it's called it's basically called a demand-driven dynamic pricing system, and, uh, and I think it's like driven by some like algorithm. Uh, there's a New York Times article that's all about how a bunch of fans who uh, basically applied for a special virtual QR code or something to get into a virtual queue to get like Bruce Springsteen con- concert tickets because they're so difficult to get. Once they were actually able to buy the tickets, the tickets were like upward of like $5,500 or so. The, the article, which we can go ahead and link to in the show notes, is unsure because uh, of uh, who actually set that price. But I'm going to guess it's an algorithm. <laughs> but the point is, is that everybody freaked out. There was a lot of like crying on the how internet. How could you, Bruce? Yeah, how could you, Bruce? Uh, my favorite part of this story is that it uh, a, a representative named Bill Pascrell Jr. Uh, authored a uh, legislation called the Boss Act which was calling for uh, the Federal Trades Commission to set rules governing ticket sellers and uh, how they set the prices and also calling for the breakup of like, or there needed to be a separation between Live Nation and Ticketmaster, which, you know, I'm, I'm, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, I'm fine yeah, with that. Yeah, yeah. Fine with that. Uh, probably not going to go anywhere. But, um, but yeah, so like basically the story is, is that like uh, after like, I don't know, a few days of like mm-hmm. uh, fans crying at the fact that like Bruce Springsteen tickets were too pricey, uh, he stepped in. The boss up from from on high from his from his like uh, coffee with Obama or whatever and uh, stepped in and like placed a cap on prices or something and like basically like brought the prices down. Also, and all just the... said that most tickets weren't being sold for really expensive prices. It was like ten percent of tickets or something. Yeah, yeah, and so it ended up being like I don't know. Tickets were like uh, the normal price of like a two hundred to five hundred dollars ticket. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, so, so that's so, so I think so I think the reason why we're kind of like bringing this up this story up is that maybe one there's like this like dynamic pricing system that like Ticketmaster is trying to create so that they creating the system so that it, the demand of the tickets the price of the tickets is in direct relation to the demand of those tickets and then in doing that if the prices go up it'll help the artists make more money obviously Ticketmaster will make a little bit more money and the people that won't make the money are the people are the scalpers and so that's kind of was like the sort of supposed motivation behind it yeah. right and so like that's why we thought it was kind of an interesting topic because like brings up a number of like questions right it's like is this a system that's fair is there a moral imperative to setting a ticket price for live entertainment so on and so forth in some ways we're really interested in this story because it's it's a follow-up to um an episode we did i guess about a year and a half ago about Ticketmaster and and kind of like the like tldr (laughs) please don't cancel us take that we emerged from that with is that while Ticketmaster, Ticketmaster Live Nation is like a shitty monopoly, their job is to take a lot of heat for the industry and that a lot of the things, a lot of the, the fucked up 
problems in this story. And the reason I think the story... The reason the story caught a lot of people's attention and, and got in a particular weird way is because it didn't make sense. And it didn't make sense, and it doesn't make sense, because if you go from like a like a fairly ground-level analysis, it's like Ticketmaster's the bad guy, but then Ticketmaster can't quite be the bad guy because it's part of this broader system that everyone, including the supposed good guys, like Bruce Springsteen, who's supposed to be a good guy uh, to like a lot of music fans is right it's because they're so firmly part of this overall system and that the only way to make sense of it is to kind of take a step back and to think about the system as a whole and think about the the fucked up parts of that system as a whole and the way that the whole system functions under capitalism and that without doing that you get this weird kind of like half story that's really unsatisfying but the, the 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 precipitating incident which is people being asked to spend six thousand dollars for a bruce springsteen ticket is so patently absurd that you can't help but get into it so i thought we, we would kind of spend some time today kind of talking through these different angles and then trying to get to a sense of like how <laughs> Ticketmaster and how these live the live industry functions in relationship to like the record industry as a whole and like maybe where we think your anger like people's anger like should go or like what like what actually makes sense to be angry about Ticketmaster is a monopolistic company that also owns a lot of venues. And basically, to tour through the country, you have to go at a, at a high level. You have to go through Ticketmaster. Um, Pearl Jam found this out in 1995, and it's really remained true to the present. Please go listen to our Ticketmaster episode for more. Ticketmaster makes most of its money. It signs exclusive deals to sell the tickets to a lot of these venues. And then it makes its money. And makes money for the venue and the artist through bullshit service fees. And basically, one of Delivery its major fees. functions, right, is to take the heat for the rest of the music industry, right? Because at some pretty, like, primal level, and that's one of the other really interesting things about this story, right, is, is it reflects... I think a broad sense of like what could be called like a just economy and the fantasy of a just economy that like prices are are real and that prices have a real relationship to the goods and that there's a, a fair price that there's you know that sandwich is worth six dollars and sure people make some money off it but it's okay that's fair but if it's fifteen dollars it's not fair I mean that's like a pre-present day inflation. Now it's like a $25 sandwich, but like still. And, and I think there's a similar take on this, right? Which is that there's a a fair price for the tickets. Tickets should be caught, certain kind of shows should be $30. Other shows should be $50 or $60. Big shows can be 100 now or 150. And then there's an unfair price. And in some ways, Ticketmaster says, we get you in with what feels like a fair price. And then there's this extra 20, 25% surcharge on top of that. And people go like, oh, fuck, Ticketmaster, I hate you for your bullshit charges. But like, actually, my understanding, and again, in some of these new venues, it may have changed. But traditionally, those that percentage extra that Ticketmaster charges is split between Ticketmaster's, how they get their money for the services they definitely render, right? Like, I no longer have to go down to the venue to purchase a ticket, which you totally used to have to do. The The venue itself, when it's not owned by Live Nation, um, and oftentimes the artists, too, will get a cut of this. And all of this is, like, what is helping to, to make this part of the music industry a really successful and profitable one. Notice, like, unlike a lot of other pieces of the music industry, especially for artists, right? Artists are not selling. I mean, some, some, a handful of artists are making real money off of streams. But for a lot of artists, they're making even more money off of touring. And that includes some really big artists. Also, in some ways, this whole cohort of veteran artists who dominate concert tours 
while not being able to move serious numbers of records. Like Bruce Springsteen, maybe he's like a number one rocket, which means nothing now. But like Bruce Springsteen is not going to sell substantive huge numbers of records probably with minus yeah, like a either a weird blip or they don't want to listen to like whatever he came out with a year ago or whatever yeah they're just i mean like i think and any you know he's you know there are i i have friends who are go to bat for the rising i was just about to say that <laughs> yeah I just, listen it was an emotional moment all right it was, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and that's the voice we wanted to hear it, i mean it really was <laughs> Wasn't the voice I wanted to hear, but that's besides the point. But, but, uh, it, it still, he's not likely to sell significant more records the way he's not gonna have another platinum record, but he can still have an enormous selling tour. And that's true for Madonna, U2, Billy Joel when he's not driving drunk around Long Island. Well, Billy Joel just plays Madison Square. Yeah, where else is he gonna play? Anyways, okay, moving on though. Yeah, it's like a huge, for, for these artists, it's like a huge. It's a huge revenue stream. And it's a huge revenue stream for the industry overall, right? Yeah, and it's a huge revenue stream because also there's a huge demand to see these people over and over again. And so that's the thing that gets kind of complicated, right? Is that there is an argument that these ticket sales are... Right. The, the the idea for Ticketmaster's dynamic pricing is that they're trying to take tickets off of the secondary market. Um, they're probably also partially doing this because previously they were just dumping, they were just selling tickets on this. They would take a certain number of tickets and sell them on the secondary market and take that money. And they got in trouble for doing that. Um, there's a wonderful book called Ticket Mastered uh, that was the basis of for a, a lot of our, our episode about Ticketmaster. And just just what you mean by that is that basically like when you go on like a website like SeatGeek or something like that, like they, some of those tickets were being sold by Ticketmaster themselves. And and what I was gonna say about the the Ticketmastered book is Ticketmaster didn't invent that. Uh, it turns out that like major promoters had had literally always been doing that. There's an, and and actually from my own research, right? Promoters were doing that in the 1880s for operas, touring opera stars in New York City. And they were like, they, people were complaining about scalpers. That's the awesome historian take and why we do this podcast. Love that. Uh, <laughs> that's, just, that's some serious perspective for you. Yeah, no, just complaining viciously about it. So the question then, right, is that, you know, there's the, the, the economist take here is there's a space in between the asking price of a ticket and the actual value that people will pay for it. And that if people are willing to pay more money, if people are willing to pay $5,000 for that $500 ticket, that $500 ticket is underpriced. Yeah, 100%. Um, and that in a market for limited commodities, that's like, sorry that you don't get to see Bruce Springsteen, but he's too powerful for you. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I mean, like, if you, if like, if you're sitting there listening to this and going like, but that's still unfair. It's way too much. It's like, yeah, I mean, well, yeah, that's the system. The system is unfair. And so I think that's where we get to like the meat of exactly theirs, where we get to the meat of, of the complexity of this, right? right? Which is what you're running into. And I think Bruce Springsteen is like a perfect figure for this because not just like the boss, you know, the poet of the working person, also, in many ways, like the poet laureate of industrial decline in America, like that's what his best music is about. It's about the factory closing. And I do think that there's, and so some of the people's visceral disgust with this is like, he's on the other side now. But the sad thing is like, we're all on the other side now. And I think it's worth taking a minute to step back and think about like the change in economy that we've seen, right? Like, I think that part of that, there's a just price, that people are making money, but it's a fair amount of money, that is part of this, like, what I've been thinking a lot about, which is this kind of, like, mid-20th century consumer democracy, right? That there were some rich people, of course, and there were a lot of people excluded from it, for sure. But there's a sense that, like, everyone could buy the $20 album, or the $10 album, you know, it's like $30 in today's money, but whatever. Um, everyone could buy the album, everyone could go see the ticket, and that because everyone had access to these things, it was okay that people kind of almost like meritocratically moved to the top. It's okay at some level that the record companies were making a profit over all of this because there was something 
yeah, like democratic about that kind of access, right? And the sense that like the way to, the right way to get ahead was to make something that a million like Joe's six packs were gonna buy and keep on their stereo system. And that at some levels, like the core of the, like the, the post Fordist, con- or the Fordist consumer economy, right? right? You have union jobs. They pay people enough to buy a lot of stuff. Other union people make those things. And like you have a massive domestic market, but like we're very much, again, we're like very much not in that market anymore. But some of the, the I think, the, the the ideologies from that moment are still very much with us. And those ideologies, I think, um, are both good and bad, right? Like, I don't think that, like, sense that there's something disgusting about tickets being this expensive for music. Like, I don't think that that's wrong. I don't think, I think that disgust is, like, real. And I think that a kind of sadness and anger that this sort of, like, mass market democracy is gone is like again is like is real but like unfortunately we live in like a, a like a one percent world right where like the way this economy is structured is it makes me more money now to sell five thousand dollar tickets to yeah, I a mean, more limited number of people we live in a live appearance not platinum album world and i think that the that anger is maybe like misdirected in the sense where it's like or it's like maybe not even like i mean it is misdirected or it's like misinformed or it's like only like slightly informed in the sense that like this everything you just explained about like how like the economy and our society has shifted in this like you know post fordist like is really hard for people to understand right and this and their mind frame is maybe still like you know especially especially bruce fans you know like our parents age right like their mind frame is still in this sort of like mass consumption like union jobs maybe still like available or at least you know a certain like fairness within like yeah. that capitalist society even if that fairness was in an, an illusion it still happened on like sort of like smaller like levels you know you always give your it like, was Warhol close Coke enough example. to reality to right. allow people to buy into it in a right. way that our generation doesn't buy into it doesn't at all. Buy yeah, into yeah, it. right. Yeah, exactly, 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 exactly. Yeah, um, but I think, but it, it does, it does, it does also though remind us of the fact that this whole idea in which Bruce Springsteen is marketed on and branded and has made a huge career off of, regardless if he did actually come from a working class like factory background, like in New Jersey, just becomes a market in a sense, you know. But it is. I mean, I can't help but just think about the. Bruce, Bruce Springsteen, like his like deepest moments of existentialism, where he's like, "I'm living in a mansion and like selling five thousand dollar tickets, but I'm the like working class blue jean like god of a you know white working class America." Like that must be like a real like mind fuck. Um, and I even question if whether or not Bruce Springsteen understands it, considering his friendship with Obama. Neither here nor there. But your main point is the fact that, like, there's these greater systematic issues at hand. And like you said, the dissatisfaction with this kind of argument and this kind of dissatisfaction with these pricey tickets expressed by these fans is, like, not the whole story. Yeah, it's not the whole story. And, and, and I guess there is this thing where, like, that economist argument I kind of put forward before, right? Right. If we accept music as a non-mass market commodity, which in a world that's kind of where music is kind of bifurcated, right? Where either it costs free with ads or 10 bucks a month to get all of the music or like a $500 concert ticket. Cause like at some level also like $5,000 is too much to pay for a concert ticket. And it's disgusting, but like $500 is a lot to pay for a concert ticket as well i mean like nosebleed kendrick tickets were going for like a hundred like the other day and i was still like that's too much and so like in that world where like things are bifurcated like that right if you want that economist argument to be wrong if you want because it's logical on its face within the within the logic of capitalism yeah yeah yeah, yeah right exactly within the logic of capitalism that the economist argument that if people are willing to pay $5,000 for a ticket, it is, that's the fair price for that ticket, sell that ticket for that much. It is inefficient for the market to, it's actually, the economists would take it even further and be like, by reducing ticket prices to a lower level, you actually make it 
so there's not an economic pressure to figure out ways to get more people into the stands to bringing our lower tickets blah right. blah 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 right, blah, right. blah right so like from that market but 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 if you think it's wrong then you actually have to like the only way to get around i think that the really powerful logic that is like very blunt on the face of its statement is to to say like okay then the problem is treating music like a commodity and the problem is that there needs to be other kinds of values besides monetary values that define how music functions in our society, the kind of access that people have to music in our society, the kind of um, support that music gets from our society, that in a kind of like Bernie-esque mode where it's like medical care shouldn't be defined by the market, like music maybe shouldn't be fully defined by the market. And I think it's really interesting because like that's what people who are arguing against these expensive tickets are saying. They're yeah. saying that music, while it's okay to that music is partially determined by the market, it is somehow immoral. It feels culturally sacrilegious to have it determined fully by the market. And I think that at some level it's like misplaced, but I think it kicks ass, right? Yeah, totally. It's, it's actually like a pretty compelling critique of like a pretty big pillar of the modern culture industries and like people's visceral feelings about that. And the people fact crying in this article, like yeah. there was like, there was like a local woman who was like crying, like just a fan of Springsteen. who was like quoted as a sh- like tears holding back. Yeah. And so like the fact that people feel this way is actually like an indication of, um, a like the residuals of some of the good parts of those uh, former ideologies, and the fact that like maybe you can't drive it to that like, that intense economist level, right? That right. there is that there's like, like social that like, there's like will push back. social yeah there there will be social pushback, and just I feel like the thing that Ticketmaster is doing really effectively here is once again doing its job, which is to take the fall as the bad guy, and like. Don't get me wrong. I think Ticketmaster, like, is the bad guy in many ways. But like, there's a lot of bad guys, right? Like, I mean, within the, I think like within the logic of capitalism, within the system, I mean, like, they're all bad guys. It's like everyone, everyone's a bad guy. But like, but like, like Bruce you, Springsteen comes off as the bad guy. Yeah, but also it's like if you, you want to think about competition, right? So like, pe- people talk about you know breaking up Ticketmaster or breaking up Ticketmaster and Live Nation, and like, yeah, that w- I'm sure that it would be good. But it's also like, it seems to me like the competition you want, if you want to make a more equitable cultural sphere, is not like allowing some stadiums to like not have the service charges. Like, do you really think they're going to do that? Because if you look around at New York City right now and you think about Bruce Springsteen's career, all of the clubs that he came up at are gone. Yeah, great the point. infrastructure that enabled someone like Bruce Springsteen to develop his gifts, whether you like them or not, to develop his band, to develop his following, they're all gone. The music critics that were absolutely instrumental and the music publications that are absolutely instrumental in creating like his aestheticized vision of rock and roll, they're all underfunded or gone. The Village Voice, which was instru- like absolutely central to pushing his career, is like semi-gone shadow of his former self maybe back on newsstands but like who even knows like you can't you know real estate development has pushed out (laughs) all of the kinds of infrastructure that allows communities of musicians to form and like that's as much the bad guys in some ways like that's as much like the comp that that those processes are as much of the problem (laughs) it seems like as like the extra $20 or $50 or $100 or in this case like $2,000 on top of like a superstar's already inflated ticket prices. I feel like for me, and I don't know how you could transfer that anger from people furious that the boss is finally, finally selling out. Like this is the straw that breaks the camel's back. But that's where the anger I feel like should go is it's not it's about the fact that there are so many fewer clubs where you can see a, a new band for a cover of a drink and the fact that those clubs regardless have been kind of written out of the musical mainstream yeah i mean whatever said i mean yeah like i think that maybe even if like that anger as you said which is like maybe slightly misdirected or maybe slightly misinformed but actually is like kind of badass 
like doesn't fully understand or doesn't articulate like these like bigger systematic issues that are at hand i think that like it doesn't necessarily maybe need to articulate that and then maybe it just by that very anger it can like open up other doors that do address that more systematic issue i mean th- we're getting really galaxy brained here a little bit but like i mean i think going back historically to like when you know the new deal or whatever and we've obviously we did an episode like way back about that about how like one of the things to build up the morale of the american people was to have like bands go to like more rural places and like play for like a penny or for like free even right and it was like these are like badass like urban well-trained like musicians this wasn't yeah. like a dude in acoustic guitar with like the you know like begging for money busking for money right like these are like this is like state funded and it was done because brother they... can you spare Dvorak uh, string quartet <laughs> amazing amazing um, and that's but it was government funded and the government had this idea and like not to say that there wasn't many problems then but like they literally like acknowledged that like we need to like build up the morale of the people and here's like a way to do it through music through affordable cheap music the possibility of that happening right now, like obviously I think is like very unlikely. Right. And so the things that you're expressing, I think are also like, yeah, I could see why somebody might say that it's galaxy brain, but there is like, a, I only mentioned this past, you know, with the new tra- new deal and everything, because it like, there is a historical precedent for this actually happening. So it's not like we're just like pulling the shit out of our ass. Yeah, totally. Like once you're at the superstar level, once you're at the stadium level, I mean, maybe there's an argument for like the limited for somehow limiting the degree of profits that the sector of the music industry can 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 turn but in this like let's be real here like that is that one of the clear profit sectors is making more and more wristbands that get you into like ever more exclusive rooms further and further and further (laughs) backstage (laughs) and like backstage of the backstage of the green room of the green room inside the purple room into the red room yeah yeah it's almost like you can imagine like a marx brothers routine like you get all the way and they just like into the alley outside the like yeah you're done yeah Yeah, then you're out you're out out of the venue right um right but 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 and that's such a clear profit sector for them and in, in a world again where there's that bifurcation both between the kind of relative lack of money devoted to recorded music and the importance of live music, the kind of, and the kind of bifurcation of the music industry where uh, a handful of top, top artists are getting an increasing percentage of the total money sloshing around in it. Like, I don't see how that's not going to happen. And and I think that you're bringing up the, the, the new deal and, and, and the kind of the, the idea that it can be a public good to support music is like, it does seem like the competition, the way to create the, the way to create competitiveness in this market while definitely breaking up the monopolies is useful. It seems like the real competition is facing someone with a choice of, I can see one big act or three small acts and still have 40 bucks in my pocket. Right, that's for like a hundred dollar ticket, not for a five. Right, I can see one Bruce Springsteen, or I can see a mid level artist five times, and like giving people the kinds of you know. Now we're getting into like <laughs> really like uh like urban planning galaxy brain of like giving people the world where like it's convenient and accessible for them to see like that mid-level person a whole bunch of times but like that that's the way it's you know if you want to like decommodify this like that's that seems like the way to do it i mean like the negative thing is that like you know uh having lived in atlanta for a year and a half like these medium-sized venues have been built and are extremely accessible but turns out those medium-sized venues are also owned by like some subsidiary of like live nation or something but anyways i get your point i get your point i think it's good and i just want to say that i think the macro takeaway here is that there is a, a, a the macro takeaway that has like a slither of hope that actually speaks to things outside of the music industry is that people the 99 percent the rest of us out here like there is a breaking point for a lot of us and i don't know whether or not like that like leads to any kind of like real systematic change whether it just be like a bruce springsteen concert or something more greater and politically that seems a little bit more fair but like that's kind of my one slither of hope that like at some point the midwest 
is going to be fed up with the price of Kirkland jeans at Costco. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know. <laughs> the, the, the point is, there is a breaking point. There's a breaking point. But, you know, we'll go ahead and tie a bow on it right there. Uh, like I said, uh, just a reminder, thanks for listening. Music by Bird Language. You can follow us on all the socials. Uh, we'll be back in three weeks time so that we can wrap up some things in our personal life. Rate and review. It's the summer anyways. You're probably, it's probably too hot to listen to podcasts. Please rate and review us. Uh, Sam and I will be uh, doing our podcast now with a six hour time difference. Sam is shaking his head annoyed that I'm leaving. But um, yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, we'll see you soon. Bye.